We all have a routine that we follow when we shower. You don't even think about it. Unconsciously, you do the same things the way that you do every day, day after day. Well, one of my routines is I like to do push-ups before I shower. Kind of reminds me of the need to do it for one, and then two, you know, when I walk past the mirror, I like to flex my arm and say, oh, I still got a little bit there, you know. And so this morning I was doing my push-ups, and uh, I always take my glasses off when I do push-ups because I don't like them swinging on my nose, and I don't like if, if I'm doing a lot of them, I don't want the sweat coming down on the lenses. So I took the glasses off, put them on the chest of drawers, and I did my push-ups. And when I got up, I turned around and looked, and across the room, my wife has a full-length mirror. And I caught a reflection of myself in the mirror, and I looked for a while, and I thought, wow, I've got a six-pack. <laughs> and so I was pretty excited about it, and I put my glasses on, and I looked over there. And, uh, you know, it's an amazing thing, we, we have blinds. And they were cocked just, they put, they put these shadows in the perfect spot. And all of a sudden, this Greek god ended up being this, uh, what I am, you know, and I was thinking, you know, I look better without glasses and from a distance. Then I realized the Lord just gave me the sermon illustration, uh, introduction. And that is, you know, when it comes to God, there are some things about him that we might not want to know. We might prefer a different view. And so we don't put on the truth of proper vision, if you will. We don't apply it to our conscience and to our processes of thinking about God. Well, today, we're going to continue with our series on the wrath of God. Some may inquire, why would anybody study that? Who would want to get up in the morning and get to church to hear a sermon about the wrath of God? Well, let me explain to you the importance of this topic. Without understanding the wrath of God, we cannot understand the atonement. And if we don't understand the atonement, we'll never really appreciate Jesus and what he's done for us. And <clears throat> though we may intellectually get some aspects of it, it will never change our heart. And so this process we're on is the process to change our hearts, to help you and me fall in love with the Lord, maybe for the first time, or more deeply than we currently are. So we will look at the wrath of God, part two. Please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. <clears throat> and we begin with verse 10. God is speaking. He says, now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And I, <clears throat> and I will make of you a great nation. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, 
Why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. God has wrath. You cannot read the scriptures and deny it. God has wrath. God's wrath is different than our wrath. Our wrath is passionate and irresponsible. His is principled. God's wrath, simply put, is his holy reaction against sin. God's wrath is what he does against sin. It's because he's holy and sin is not holy. And so as we learn about God's holiness, we will begin to understand what sinfulness is and we'll begin to build the bridge of why God has wrath against sin. Sin simply cannot be in God's presence, nor is it tolerated. Last week we looked at two metaphors used in the Bible to describe God's holiness. The first metaphor was height, the Lord most high. Distance cannot approach him, come no further. This week we are going to look at three metaphors that are used to describe God's holiness. We're going to look at light and fire. God is light and God is a consuming fire. Let's go to 1 John chapter 1. You will find that in the New Testament towards the back of the book. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. <clears throat> Brilliant light is blinding and the heat of fire is consuming. 1 John 1 verse 5, it says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Darkness cannot dwell where light is. Light dispels darkness. God is light and in him is no darkness and no darkness will be around him. God is light. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Turn to the left in your Bibles and you'll come to that. It's a description of this light and about God. And this is one of those passages or one of those uh, several verses, I should say, where Paul starts a sentence and it goes on and on and on and on. No period, so it's hard just to, where to, to know where to begin. So we have to back up a ways to get to the verse that we want. But we want to take these things in context. So go to verse 13 and we'll, we'll start reading. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things. And before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only potentate, that means sovereign, 
He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. God is light, and God dwells in unapproachable light. God alone has immortality, and no man has seen him or can, can see him and survive. Now let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, you go back to the right in your Bibles, and you'll come to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll be reading verse 29. It's a short verse. This is a good one. If you're wanting to memorize scripture, this is a good one to begin with. It's short. It says, for our God is a consuming fire. It's not necessarily one that you want to put in the on the refrigerator, but uh, it is easy to memorize. Our God is a consuming fire. Now, please turn to Hebrews 10, verse 26. Now, we're going to read a passage here that gets us to the verse that I want to study with you, but some of you are going to get hung up on the first verse. And so I'm going to ask you to wait before you get hung up. Follow along with the entire passage. I will come back and explain verse 26 to you, okay? So chapter 10, verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Fiery, fiery indignation falling into the hands of God is a fearful thing. Now some of you noticed verse 26 and have a few questions and they're going to show on the screen the New International Version for you. Let's go to verse 26. It, uh, it helps to understand it. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Do you notice what it is if we deliberately keep on sinning? Forty years ago this month, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. And so for 40 years, I've sought to walk with the Lord. And during those 40 years, I have committed many sins. I'm not proud of that. I'm just demonstrating for you by illustration's sake 
that this process of walking with God does not create within a person a perfection. We get better. I think I'm a better person on many levels. And uh, my wife would tell you I'm a better person on many levels as well. I've been improving. But I will never, nor will you, ever reach a point where we are not sinning. We are sinful. We don't even know when we sin sometimes. And so one could read this and be very, very nervous. Here, 40 years ago, I accepted Christ, and I have 40 years of many times I've been at the throne of God confess, confessing my sins, asking for forgiveness from Him. I've had to ask forgiveness of some of you, too, because of things I've done and things I've said. But here is the difference between somebody seeking to walk after God, who is a human being, who makes mistakes, who even chooses sometimes to sin, that person who comes back to God confessing his sin, seeking for forgiveness and asking for God's grace to not continue in it, that person will be okay. The process is the direction God wants them to go. They will never arrive at a perfect point, but that's okay because in Christ we're judged perfect already. Here's what it does mean. If I accept Jesus Christ as my savior, and then I walk away from him, and I become rebellious, and I just live the life that I want to live, and I do not repent, I do not confess that sin, I don't care about God, and I don't want to be with God, that person's in trouble. And that person, according to scriptures, is in more trouble than somebody who had never embraced Christ at one time. Because the person who has embraced him by the lifestyle that they're living now is mocking the salvation that was given to them as a gift by God. The point that I want you to remember is not all that I just shared, but that God is a consuming fire. And that the wicked are going to have to deal with judgment and a raging fire that will consume them. Now, people read stuff like this and they say they simply don't like this picture of God. Well, I'm telling you, when we're done studying the wrath of God, you're going to love the picture of God because he is a God you can love, he's a God you can respect, and he's a God you can count on. Amen. Now, some people say, okay, well, all right, so God has wrath, but his wrath is passive. Well, we're going to study that, but I just want you to think about that for a minute. His wrath is passive? Yeah, it's true. And some, some places in Scripture, he simply withdraws his protection. And to use the words of Scripture, all hell breaks out. It happens. That's his passive wrath. But let me ask you something. <clears throat> At the end of time, when the wicked are judged, how passive is it that God raises them from the dead in order to be judged? That's pretty active. And only he can do that. And he does that. And so this concept of wrath can't be ducked. It is real. We have to take it full face. We have to embrace what the scriptures teach us. Can take my glasses off and deny it. I can take my glasses off and 
re-describe it, redistribute it, try to do something with it that the scriptures don't, try to explain it by using a little hocus pocus to make God look better and to make me love him more. The truth is, it is what it is. God is God and God has wrath and that wrath is against sin. God is holy as demonstrated by light and fire. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. In verse 6, again, one of Paul's long sentences, so we're just going to jump in at verse 6. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they'll be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. When Jesus comes, his coming is described as taking vengeance with flaming fire. Fire. God is holy. Now, we're going to go to the third metaphor for today, and that is vomiting. Now, vomiting is uh, one of the body's most violent of all reactions. I was blessed to have three children, and those children I was very active in raising them, and that meant diapers and everything. And I, I learned early on that when a child is covered from the knees to the chest with what has spilled out of the diaper, the best way to deal with it is turn the water on in the bathtub, rinse the kid completely off, and then wash the bathtub. It's much easier. It also disseminates the smell, and it's a whole lot more pleasant. So anyways, I got over the diaper stuff. I didn't love it. Did it. Child needed it. Someday somebody will probably be doing that for me again. It's awful to think about, but it happens. My daughter told me, Dad, don't worry about it. You started out in diapers, you'll end up in diapers. Gee, you know, that's just not hopeful. But anyways, the point I'm trying to make is this. I got over number two. But when they vomited, oh my, that's, that's hard. That was hard. Uh... And vomiting, I looked it up in the dictionary, and that's where I got the definition. It is one of the body's most violent of all reactions, vomiting. Did you know that in the scriptures, vomiting is a metaphor about God's rejection of evil? I'd like to show that to you. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 18. That's all the way into the front of the Bible. It'll be the third book of the Bible. Leviticus chapter 18. A lot of sins are listed here. 
And when we come to the passage we're going to read, we'll have to discuss some things here. Because God is saying this. He says in verse 24, he says this to the Israelites, do not defile yourselves with any of these things. For by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. Well, what's going on here? God took a man named Abraham, walked him all around the region of Canaan, and said, this land will be given to your descendants, and they'll have it forever. But God told Abraham that it would be over 400 years before they would get that land. And he says, because the cup of iniquity is not full yet, the sins of the Canaanites hadn't matured. When the Israelites were in Egypt and they were brought out of Egypt, they were about two to three million people. They were coming to this land that God had promised them. Now, the Canaanite evil had reached a level where God was going to act. And he's going to remove them and he's going to put the Israelites in their place. Does that bother you? Here are people that have owned the land for hundreds and hundreds of years. And then, all of a sudden, they're going to be taken out and the Israelites are put in. What kind of justice is that? Hold on, we'll see if we can find an answer for you. Verse 25 says, for the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who sojourns with you. For all these abominations the men of the land have done, who were before you, and thus the land is defiled, lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Well, first of all, let's deal with the question, what gives God the right to remove one group of people and put another group of people there on the land? Well, he's God, and it's his land. And they were so vile he was removing them. Who would be the people that would be upset that God would do that? It would be the people who sympathized with the ones who were removed. Now this is genocide, by the way, because God will say, I want you to remove every man, every woman, and every child, and all of their animals. And immediately some of you are saying, but the children, they didn't have anything to do with it. Well then probably some of them will be in heaven. So don't worry about it. But God says the land's going to vomit them out. I'll show you a verse later. It means it's him. He's the one that's doing it. So God has land, and it's become so defiled by the people that God's going to remove those defiling people and put a people there who are supposed to be in a covenant relationship with him. But he says, if you do what they did, same thing's happening to you. God is just. God's principles are like an electric fence. That, that electric fence doesn't care if I'm Danny 
Doesn't care if I'm Brad. Doesn't care who touches it. What's going to happen? Shock. I could be in a bad mood. Shock. I could be in a good mood. Shock. I could just have committed adultery. Shock. I could be living a pure life. Shock. It doesn't matter. When God's holiness comes up against sin, sin cannot stay there. The land belongs to God. And God is saying, these people are so vile, they're done. I'm, they're they're out of here. And if you're worried about their salvation, don't. Because if they're worthy to be saved, God will save them. If not, don't worry about it. But do worry about this. God said, if I'll do that to them, I'll do that to you too. If you act like they did. Now let's use another illustration. As far as I know, I'm healthy. Have a sore throat, but my doctor's taking care of that. His nurse did anyways. It still hurts. <laughs> well, <clears throat> suppose I go to my doctor and through a series of tests we discover that inside of my body is a cancer. Now that cancer is going to do everything it can to duplicate itself. And that cancer is so insidious and so evil, it will destroy its very source of life in order to keep living. Now, if I have a vote with all the cells in my body, and the vote is this, who wants the cancer to be destroyed, what are the good cells going to vote? Yes, because it's killing us. The only ones who would be in question would be the cancer cells themselves. The point is this, that land with its occupants was a cancer on the earth and God was removing it. The only people who would choose that as a reason not to serve God would be people who identify with the cancerous behavior. If we understand the holiness of God and the evil of sin, we say, thank God that he dealt with it. I wish he'd deal with it again. And he will. He will. In the meanwhile, our work is to make sure we don't become like that ourselves. Well, let's go to another passage, Luke or Leviticus chapter 20. Leviticus chapter 20, verses 22 and 23. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments and perform them that the land where I am bringing you to dwell <clears throat> may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the statutes of the nation which I am casting out before you, for they commit all these things, and therefore I abhor them. You see, the land vomited them is a metaphor for God casting them out because he abhors them. Does he love them? Sure. But sin and sinners will not 
be in the presence of a holy God. Not going to happen. God's wrath is his holy reaction against sin. Now, let's go to the New Testament. Please turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, a letter written to a group of church members. So far, I've enjoyed the sermon, but now it's getting close to home. Revelation 3, verse 14, it says, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Spew in the Greek can be translated spit or vomit. Hypocrisy is so obnoxious to God, he describes his abhorrence to it as vomiting it, a violent reaction against it. So here we are in church. Are we hot? Are we cold? Are we just cruising? Are we just hanging around? Now, when we read this, I'll tell you what comes to my mind. God's pretty short-tempered or something. I mean, they're in church. They're not bad. You know, they're not hot, not cold. I mean, they're just kind of tepid. They're, they're there. And then it dawned on me. The passage we read earlier in Hebrews is the answer to that. If we are hanging around where Christ is being taught and we don't care enough to be fully committed to Christ, we are mocking the whole plan of salvation. And our sin is greater than if we weren't even hanging around. God is holy. And he will not be mocked by sin. So we've looked at height. We've looked at distance. We've looked at light, fire, and vomiting. All of these illustrate the utter incompatibility of divine holiness and human sin. God will not be in the presence of sin. If it approaches him too closely, it is repudiated or consumed. God hates evil. He is disgusted and angered by it. He refuses ever to come to terms with it. He doesn't say, well, it's here, okay, well, that's just the way things are. No. His plan to deal with sin did not include moral compromise. He is holy. His kingdom is holy. And everything associated with God is holy. He did not change. He will not change. He won't do anything different than who he is. Amen. Why? Two reasons. He's God and he's holy. 
If we bring God down to our level and raise ourselves up to his, we see no need for a radical salvation. Jesus' death on the cross might be a nice example, might be a nice statement. Thank you, God. How could anybody love us so much to do that? But we'll never comprehend what actually happened. We have glimpsed, when we have glimpsed at the blinding glory of the holiness of God and have been so convicted by our own sins by the Holy Spirit that we tremble before God and acknowledge that we are hell-deserving sinners, then and only then does the cross of Christ mean something to us. It was Thursday night. Jesus would die the next day. He's in the garden called Gethsemane. He's praying. He prays three times. Father, take this cup from me. I don't want to drink this cup. Now, Jesus is facing his death the next day. And that cup, having to drink that cup, we've associated it on a number of levels. He is going to go through this without friends. They're all going to forsake him. One will deny he ever knew him. One is the betrayer. So Jesus has to suffer through that emotional strain. Jesus will be tortured physically. He's got to deal with that. Jesus will be mocked, derided, and ridiculed, and killed by the very people he came to save. He's got to deal with that. Jesus will suffer separation from his father. He's got to deal with that. All these things are weighing on him, but that's not what the cup is. If you look in the scriptures, you will find that God's wrath is held in his cup. Jesus had to drink the wrath of God. Folks, we don't even know how horrible it was because on the cross for three hours, God darkened the day so people couldn't even see what was happening to Jesus. He drank the wrath of God, the holy expression against sin. Jesus took it so you and I wouldn't have to. That's our salvation. That's why this is so important. It's not just Jesus died on the cross, oh, thank you for that. No, Jesus took God's wrath against sin for us so we will never have to experience it. That is why if we're just hanging around church and we're just mocking God by trying to do things our own way or whatever or trying to look good and stuff. That's why it's so repulsive to God. He couldn't change. He wouldn't change. So the Father and the Son said, we got to do it this way. I don't know about you, but it moves me. It moves me deeply to think I will never 
ever have to know the wrath of God. And I'm wondering if there's anyone here who would like to say to Jesus, you know, I've probably taken you too lightly. Probably need to be a whole lot more serious. And I'd like to love you more. If you would like to say that to the Lord, I invite you to stand. Father in heaven, we pray by your grace that Jesus will truly come into our hearts and we will love him more than we've ever loved him before. And that, Lord, thank you that he has taken your wrath for us and we never have to experience it. We pray to you and we praise you in our Savior's name, amen.